This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So tonight's speaker um, is Philip Warburg speaking on energy, leaders, energy leadership. Uh, harness us on America's quest for a solar-powered future. Uh, Philip's um, background in energy goes back to the 1970s where he worked a... Uh, and getting a, an initiative passed, the Local Energy Management Act, which was passed in the 1970s, working in Capitol Hill with some of the senators. Um, he's been the president of the Conservation Law Foundation. More recently, he's written two books. Uh, the previous one is Harvest the Wind and, and Now Harvest the Sun. Uh, everyone, please uh, welcome our speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Roger, um, and I'm delighted to be here as a guest of the Institute for Energy Efficiency. I have to say, coming to California to talk about solar is a little bit like the proverbial carrying coals to Newcastle, in that um, you really are not just a leader in the nation, but a leader in the world in developing a lot of solar technology and solar policies, so you should feel great about that, and I'm honored to be able to address you today. Um, just as a start, um, Curious to see a show of hands as to how many people have solar on their homes. And how many people have neighbors with solar on their homes. Okay, I'd like to see all those hands together. That's a pretty phenomenal statement about um, how much solar has really become part of our lives. Whether we've invested in it directly or whether we're part of a broader community that has decided that solar is a worthwhile investment. And worthwhile can mean different things to different people. To some people, it's simply a matter of uh, gaining access to a resource that can guarantee them price stability going forward um, and lower energy costs despite fluctuations in uh, the power market. For some, there's satisfaction in at least chipping away a little bit at the edifice of greenhouse gas emissions and feeling like they're doing their small part to help reduce that carbon footprint that's so important to reduce. And for others still, um, it's a challenge of taking charge of at least a portion of the power that they produce. Um, and that particular aspect of taking charge points to a dynamic that came up quite often in the travels that I undertook to research harness the sun. We're accustomed to thinking of solar as the domain of progressives. Um, and I was very happy that one of your neighboring congressmen, Henry Waxman, wrote a blurb for my book. Um, that was kind of the predictable support that one might expect to get for a book about solar energy. What's more surprising is to find that another congressman from California, now living in Arizona, Barry Goldwater Jr., is every bit as fervent a solar advocate as Henry Waxman. Um, Barry Goldwater, uh, for those of you who don't know, is the son of a presidential aspirant from 1964 who gave a current presidential aspirant a run for his money in terms of outrageous things that one can say on the stump. Um, but Barry Goldwater Jr. Uh, himself is a, an ardent libertarian and he heads up a group in Arizona called TUSC, Tell Utilities Solar Won't Be Killed. And what that group does is it advocates 
for net metered solar power, for people to be able to produce solar power on their properties, whether their homes or their businesses, and get compensated for their excess production by their local utility. As I'm sure many of you know, there are raging battles in many states over how much people should be compensated for net metered solar, for distributed solar generation. And Barry Goldwater is out there at the barricades advocating for solar power. Now, I don't know if this points to a promising future where there's less of a chasm between right and left in America, but at least it's a small window onto an area of common ground in pursuing policies that make a whole lot of sense today. My own um, book about wind power was just wrapping up in 2012 uh, when people began to ask me what would be the subject of my next book. And the typical question was, well, will your book be about solar power? And my flip and dismissive answer at the time was that if I ever wrote a book about solar energy, I'd have to call it Dim Sun. And the reason I said that was because at the time, it just seemed that solar was pricing itself out of the market. I'm very happy to say that I was proven dramatically wrong. Um, between the first quarter of 2012 and the first quarter of 2015, the price of residential and utility-scale solar came down by about 46%. And during that same period, the price of commercial solar, that is solar on business rooftops, warehouses, and the like, came down by about 52%. So dramatic changes in the solar market, lots of innovative and uh, progressive policies developed at the state level, at the local level, at the federal level that have helped move solar power forward. And just one indicator of how much solar power has become a mainstream technology, um, you can find if you look at um, the install, new installed electric generating capacity during the first half of 2015. Solar accounted for 39% of all new electric generating capacity nationwide during that period. Wind accounted for about 36%. So if you add the two of those, three-quarters of new generating capacity came from two renewable energy technologies. That phenomenon has never happened before. Let's just hope it's a trend um, toward the future and not an anomaly, but it's really quite an impressive statement. You know, we hear a lot about natural gas as the gateway fuel and the cheaper fuel. You've got your own issues with natural gas just a little bit south of here, um, but it is widely thought of as the, the kind of cheaper, more expedient way to go. And what I think the numbers are saying is a lot of people, politicians, policymakers, businesses, individuals, are waking up to the fact that there are some really significant renewable energy alternatives. My own solar journey, other than on the legislative front, began in March of 2013 when my wife and I decided to install solar power on our home in Massachusetts. Climate just a little bit different than you have here in California. Um, a couple of days before the Sunlight Solar Energy crew was scheduled to appear on our doorstep, we had one of our legendary snowstorms. Not quite as legendary as we had last winter, but nonetheless, a significant snowstorm. Fortunately, there was a thaw immediately thereafter, such that our roof was clear enough that the crew did show up as planned. One member of that crew was a guy named Liam Madden. He was an Iraqi war veteran, had served in a 
Marine Expeditionary Unit, and he came back from that war determined to help fight for American energy independence and for a more sustainable energy future. When he got to our house, this tough war veteran looked up at our roof and blanched. And I said, well, what's, what's the matter? And he said, well, you know, that's a steep roof. I've never been on a roof quite that steep before. Um, he climbed the roof. It's about a 55-degree slope. Great for shedding snow, not so great for mounting solar arrays. Um, he and his teammates climbed the building, uh, belayed themselves from the peak of the roof, and installed our solar array. And since that time, we get about 75% of our total power needs from the sun, and that includes the nightly charging of a plug-in electric vehicle. Um, and the great thing about a place like Massachusetts is that even though snowy, we actually get a lot of sunlight. We get about 2,500 hours of sunlight per year. You in California get more on the order of 3,000 hours of sunlight per year. Um, but it's enough for us to generate plenty of sunlight. In fact, Massachusetts ranks number five in the nation in installed solar capacity. And we are by no means alone in installing solar on our homes. About 750,000 people, host, households today, have solar on their roofs. But we're not just seeing solar on our homes, we're also seeing it emerge in a variety of commercial contexts. Places like Ikea, Kohl's, uh, Walmart are going big time into solar. Walmart, which isn't exactly a paragon of civic, uh, let's say, pioneering, um, is nonetheless deeply invested in solar. Um, they have so far put solar on 250 of their rooftops. Their goal is to put solar on 1,000 of their rooftops and to be 100% reliant upon renewable energy in their buildings um, going forward. Another investor in solar is the National Football League. Six National Football League stadiums now have solar on them. Uh, in Massachusetts, Gillette Stadium, home of the Patriots, um, is one of those uh, places. I went to witness this solar array. Uh, it was actually not a football game that I went to, but it was a Taylor Swift concert that I took my two daughters to. And not only was I the only male in the audience over age 40, but I think I was the only person who was more excited about the solar array than I was about the performer. Uh, but Solar is going in at other stadiums as well. Um, FedEx Field in Washington, D.C. is one of them, home of the Redskins. And um, they have installed a number of solar canopies on their premises. Anyone want to guess what the biggest challenge was in installing those solar canopies? Uh, not exactly. Um, what they had to do was, I'll give you a hint, um, they had to calculate the arc of a typical football thrown during a pregame party to make sure that the footballs weren't crashing down on top of the solar canopies. So they did this, and those parking spaces are now the most coveted parking spaces um, at FedEx Field. On a less visible level, but very serious level, we're seeing solar on lots of warehouse roofs in places like New Jersey. New Jersey ranks number three in the country in installed, total installed solar capacity. And a lot of that is on rooftops, warehouse rooftops that you seldom see. Rooftops like this one, this is the White Rose Food Storage Warehouse in Carteret, New Jersey. It's a building that's a quarter of a mile long. 
has huge refrigeration uh, needs, and 90% of those needs are now met by solar energy. Lots of stories like this in New Jersey. Um, and if you really want to get into the kind of gritty aspects of solar power, you need to look at what's happening and what could happen on America's brownfields. Brownfields, as many of you probably know, are either contaminated properties or potentially contaminated properties. They might be former sanitary landfills. They might be former hazardous waste dumps. They might be former factory sites, mining areas. Um, the US EPA has a program called Repowering America's Land. And that initiative has surveyed over 100,000 brownfield sites in America. And their estimate is that if we tapped the solar potential of those sites, we could be generating three times America's total power needs from the sun. I visited a few of those sites, including one in your state, um, at the Aerojet Rocketdyne factory complex east of Sacramento. This is a site where rockets and rocket propulsion technology has been developed since the 1950s. It's a site that is terribly polluted. It's a Superfund site where uh, a pump and treat process for groundwater, not just on the site, but for miles around, has been mandated and is being implemented. Um, Aerojet Rocketdyne decided a certain kind of Swords to Plowshares initiative would be to install solar power on at least a portion of their property. So on 40 acres, they've installed a solar array, um, and that solar array now generates about a fifth of the power needs for the pump and treat process. Needless to say, this is a 5,900-acre property, so the 40 acres that they have so far devoted to solar um, are just a scratch of the surface. They could do much more, and they're considering doing more going forward. But it's a great example of how an industry that has been a very dirty industry is turning to solar to help it literally clean up its operations. Another brownfield site uh, that I spent some time at is in the West Pullman neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. West Pullman used to be a thriving industrial area. It's where the Pullman cars were made for the railroad. Um, the um, American Har Harvester uh, Corporation used to manufacture farm equipment there, um, International Harvester, sorry. And um, they pulled out in the 1980s and left a very polluted site. You can get a sense of that site from this picture here. Uh, Exelon Corporation came in and worked with SunPower to install a solar plant on this site. This facility now generates enough electricity for about 1,500 households. Um, it also created quite a number of jobs in the, in the area. All of the metal mounting posts that were used for the solar arrays um, on this site were built at a local metal workshop, and there were other people employed as well. Um, I wish I could say that this facility had reduced crime in this very crime-ridden neighborhood. Not exactly the case. The number one cause of breakage of solar panels at this facility are stray bullets falling from the sky. That said, um, it has turned what was really an environmental wasteland, a safety hazard for kids, and a visual blight into an economic and an environmental amenity. Um, but it's not just individual urban sites where we're seeing solar develop. We're also seeing entire towns and cities and counties make a real commitment to solar. 
And here again, I could tell you about progressive Marin County, where Marin Clean Energy, which is a community choice aggregation initiative, um, offers its customers a choice of light green solar, which is 50% renewable, or dark green solar, which is 100% renewable. Um, the senior George Bush used to refer to Marin County as the realm of hot tubbers. And so one might expect that this would be a place you'd see solar thrive. Less intuitive is a city not so far from here, Lancaster in the Moha Mojave Desert. It's a city of about 160,000 people. Um, for a long time, it was known best as a center for gang warfare until a Republican crime fighter came in and was elected in 2008. His name is Rex Paris. And Rex is uh, not exactly a warm, fuzzy liberal. Um, he boasted to me that during his first years in office, he put about 20,000 suspected gang leaders behind bars. And to quote him, he said, I don't care about the Constitution once you join a gang. This is a lawyer speaking, by the way. Um, so not exactly a sympathetic character in some ways, but the utter determination that he brought to fighting crime in Lancaster, he also has brought to introducing solar power to his community. He went to a conference in China not so long ago, and he was sitting with the mayors of other cities, Chinese cities, so he was sitting with the mayors of cities with you know, 10 million people, 20 million people, and here's Rex Paris representing a city of 160,000 people, and he stands up and says, I just want you to know that my city is going to become the solar capital of the world. And I think the audience kind of balked, and his staff certainly uh, was a bit surprised, but they came back to Lancaster, and they set to work developing ordinances and investing in solar on a variety of levels. Um, just about every public building and public facility in the town now has solar. Um, Utility-scale solar fields have been built on the outskirts of the town within the municipal limits. Um, and every new residential unit built in Lancaster has to have at least one kilowatt of installed solar capacity, or it has to have that equivalent amount of solar capacity built off-site to help uh, reduce the carbon footprint of these new residential units. Um, Paris estimates that in the next couple of years, that city will be a net solar energy exporter, and I think he's probably right. So the opportunities for solar uh, within our built environment really abound, uh, but there are also some limits, and I encountered those limits in various places, including on a visit to uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C., where my daughter Maya is now a senior. Um, when I went there, I asked her to show me evidence of solar power on the GW campus. And she took me to this, which is a solar table. Um, it's the only photovoltaic panel on the GW campus on Foggy Bottom. They do have some solar water heaters on the roofs of some dormitories. Um, but let's just say I was underwhelmed and she was also not exactly proud of her university's record. Um, we were both even further dismayed when GW opened its $300 million LEED Gold Certified Engineering Center. Solar on the roof? No. Why? Well, DC has very strict building height limits, and I was told that if they'd put solar panels on the roof, they would have exceeded those height limits. So again, we weren't bowled over by that one. What really did impress us, however, happened a month or two later when GW announced that it, together with GW Hospital 
and American University, also located in Washington, would be buying up the full output of three large utility-scale solar farms in North Carolina. Once those solar farms come online later this year and next year, GW will be getting more than half its total power needs from the sun. So to me, that was a great example of a university that isn't just debating about whether to divest of fossil fuels, but it's really deciding to make a real commitment to developing renewable energy, non-fossil fuel technology, if not on campus, then at least bringing it on campus through that kind of purchase. And I'm happy to say that um, through my travels today, um, visiting uh, the uh, campus, um, it's clear that you're doing a great deal here at UC Santa Barbara to advance solar technology. I was very impressed to hear about the Student Services Renewable Energy Initiative, where you've actually voted to tax yourselves, which is absolutely un-American as far as I can tell in this era. Um, and what I kind of liked about this juxtaposition, by the way, I took this photograph yesterday afternoon thinking it was not a great day for photographing a solar facility, but that surely today would be a brighter day. I'm glad I took the picture yesterday. And I kind of liked the juxtaposition because one could imagine a, an intercollegiate solar competition where people got as charged up about being more solar than another campus as people get charged up about being a better basketball team or football team or whatever other team uh, might be on the table. So it's great that you're doing what you're doing. Keep at it. Um, the three North Carolina solar farms that I mentioned as soon to supply GW and American University with their power um, are examples of another very, very important piece of the solar puzzle. So far, I've been talking really primarily about um, non-utility scale solar. Um, but utility scale solar now um, accounts for a good half of new installed solar capacity. It's a very important piece of the puzzle. And I visited a number of these facilities as well. One of them, very close to you, on the Carrizo Plain, the California Valley Solar Ranch, um, which many of you may have driven through or know about. Um, I've been told that the Carrizo Plain is called California's Serengeti, which I think is a bit apocryphal, but um, it is a place where there are wildlife species that the developer of this project, SunPower Corporation, went to great lengths to protect when they were building this facility. And I should mention that this facility generates enough electricity for about 100,000 California households, um, and it does so on about 14, with about 1,400 acres of solar arrays. Um, before they began construction of this facility, the developers did a serious mapping of the flora and fauna at this site, identified priority uh, species for protection, and among them were the San Joaquin kit fox and the giant kangaroo rat. Now, I'm from New England. I can't say I had heard of either of these creatures, but I certainly respect what they have done to protect them. Um, the developers carefully built uh, temporary dens for the San Joaquin kit fox, and built what they called temporary condos for the giant kangaroo rats. And after the facility was complete, they allowed these creatures to re-inhabit the site. Beyond that, they created migratory corridors for antelope and elk so that they could find their way through the site between the solar fields unimpeded 
and they set aside 12,000 acres in permanent conservation land. So they really went the extra mile to protect the natural environment, even though they were introducing, obviously, a very fundamental change to that environment. Um, another instance of careful preparation of a solar facility um, is the Moapa Paiutes solar installation in southeastern Nevada. This tribe um, has built, or is in the final stages of building, a large utility-scale solar farm, also um, geared to generate about 100,000 households worth of electricity. They'll be selling that electricity to California, to the LA Department of Water and Power. Um, and in preparing this site, the desert tortoise was the prime uh, species of concern. There are about 100,000 of these creatures left in the southwest. They're listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. And they relocated about 75 of these tortoises, fitted them with tracking devices, and have determined that since the site um, began to be developed and since these tortoises were moved to a 6,000-acre conservation site about 10 miles away, one tortoise has died, and it was killed in a coyote attack, which could have happened at the original site. So another example of great pains taken to protect uh, species when building utility-scale solar. I'm sure this is a familiar site to all of you. Um, solar power towers are another major utility-scale solar technology. It has certain advantages in being able to take advantage of the sun's heat. Works well in the southwest, obviously. Um, it has some downsides that I'm sure you've heard about um, in that um, birds flying through the flux, the intense heat zone created by the focus of thousands of mirrors on um, the receiving tower where molten salt is heated are being killed. Um, one way to uh, limit that damage is to rely upon parabolic trough uh, thermal power stations instead, because in this case, you basically have the heat concentrated on a glass tube that just runs a few feet above the parabolas and does not create the same kind of problem. That said, these kinds of facilities cost two to three times as much as photovoltaic-based utility-scale power plants, so I don't think we're going to see very many of them going forward. A number of the companies that have been involved in building these kinds of technologies either have gone bankrupt or are on the verge of going bankrupt, unfortunately. One other thing I'll just say about uh, the comparison between uh, the power tower approach and um, utility-scale PV is what is required of land. For the power towers, you need a very large, contiguous parcel of land. You need about, in the case of one facility I visited, um, the heliostats, the mirrors, are located in a circular pattern that is about 1.75 miles in diameter. Lot of land required. It's a kind of land that we don't find very often in the east, I have to say, um, and it's not necessarily easy in the west, I imagine. But um, one advantage that photovoltaics have is that um, you can choose much more selectively where you put the solar fields. This is a schematic map of a facility that is going to be built in Somerset County, Maryland. And you can see, hopefully, the red delineated areas are where the solar fields will go. The green areas are forested areas. So they are managing to build a large solar facility 
relying upon farmland only and not touching the forested areas. So that is another advantage to utility scale solar, uh, PV, photovoltaics. Given um, the various issues that surround utility scale solar, um, what we're finding is a kind of schism within the environment and conservation community. Renewable energy advocates say, look, we have got to really pull out all stops in developing solar on every scale if we're going to come close to meeting the kinds of goals that have been set in California by your governor, uh, in the United States by our president um, as a result of the, the Paris talks. Um, and so we really have to think about utility-scale solar as well as solar within our built environment, but we got to make sure that we're really tapping every opportunity. And so I want to go back to what we can expect within our built environment. Um, the U.S. Uh, National Renewable Energy Laboratory has estimated that if we were to tap the full solar potential of our rooftops, residential, commercial, uh, we could be generating about a fifth of our total power needs. And that takes into account the fact that a good number of roofs are not properly oriented or are shaded. Um, another very important factor, actually, um, is that uh, a good number of, sorry, let me just go back, um, rooftops uh, of households are rented. In California, about 45% of your um, households are rental households. In Santa Barbara County, it's about 53%. So those are people who don't have easy access to solar, and there is a solution to that that I will get to in one minute. But I just want to point to this slide, which I took landing at Miami International Airport on way to the Miami Book Fair. I call this the rooftop desert, because you can see there is a huge amount of space that is absolutely going to waste, not being used for anything that would be prime for solar power, Similar, this neighborhood, uh, also on the approach to Miami International Airport. Uh, we have huge rooftop resources that we could tap. And again, sometimes we can do it, sometimes we can't. The uh, National Renewable Energy uh, Laboratory has estimated that between 22 and 27% of household rooftops are well-suited to solar, and between 60 and 65% of commercial rooftops are well-suited to solar. So the opportunities are there but there are some people who can't make the leap. And for those people, there is an interesting and emerging alternative, which is called community solar. Uh, with community solar farms, people can buy shares in a large solar facility rather than put solar on their rooftops. And um, as allowed now in some 13 states, uh, they can treat that solar power as if they were generating the electricity on their own roofs. They get credited uh, proportionate to the amount, the percentage of a community solar plant that they own. The one you see here is the Venatucci Solar Farm in Colorado Springs. It has 600 subscribers. Um, they choose a very good site where there's plenty of sun, no shading, etc. But they don't have to be built on open land. They can also be built on roofs. This is the Seattle Aquarium, which is hosting a community solar facility. These kinds of facilities are being planned in California. I don't think too many of them have been built yet. They were authorized in 2013. Before that time, I think the Sacramento Municipal Utilities District um, built a pilot community solar project. So we're beginning to see it develop here, and it will be a good alternative to household-scale 
uh, solar. There's just one other kind of solar application that I want to mention, and that is low-income solar, because we really do face a serious challenge in terms of environmental equity in getting solar into communities that cannot afford to buy solar for their rooftops or don't have the credit rating that they would need to sign a third-party power purchase agreement with a company, let's say, like Solar City. Um, California, in this and many other areas, is in the lead. Um, the Public Utility Commission has required that the three big investor-owned utilities invest $324 million in low-income solar uh, installations, both on single-family houses and on multifamily houses. I visited one of these construction sites. It was the home of the Huang family in the Bayview District of San Francisco. That family now gets 90% of its electricity from the solar array that was installed, and that's a benefit that they will enjoy for decades to come, and it's also an environmental benefit for us in that it's that much less of a loading of greenhouse gases on our shared environment. Uh, it's run by a nonprofit called Grid Alternatives, and they bring in teams of volunteers from different companies. In the case of the installation I went to, that team was from Salesforce, but they also train uh, a lot of people in how to install solar power. And they've trained in excess of 10,000 people who are now entering the workforce, many of them providing valuable jobs. So they're really serving a multiple ser uh, service to the community. Just to give you a very crude sense of solar energy's overall potential, this map was prepared by Environment America based upon data provided by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And what it shows is that there are 19 states in America that could generate more than 100 times their total power needs from the sun on land that would be suitable for solar power generation. That isn't to say that anything close to that will ever be developed, but it's just a very crude indicator of how much solar power is out there. Another 15 uh, states, including California, have between 25 and 100 times um, their total current consumption of electricity that is available from the sun. So again, a prodigious amount of clean, renewable energy that is within our reach. Um, just to give you a sense of where your state stacks up, um, California, not surprisingly, is far and away the number one uh, installer of solar power. Um, and you can see here, this is from 2014. You're well over uh, the 10 gigawatt or 10,000 megawatt limit today. Uh, but you can see how far ahead of the crowd you are, and a lot of that is a tribute to the progressive policies that have been introduced, including uh, your 33 percent by 2020 and your 50 percent by 2030 renewable portfolio standard. Other policies are playing a role, um, and uh, it's interesting to me that uh, in 2015, um, solar, actually, actually it was at the end of 2014, solar eclipsed wind as the um, leading renewable energy source in your state. Today, solar provides about 6.7% of your total power supply as, as against winds 5.3%. Uh, and I should mention that this does not include 
distributed solar generation, um, as in household or commercial solar. So if you add those in, you're probably coming pretty close to 10% of your total power needs coming from the sun, which is pretty impressive, which is not to say you should be resting on your laurels. California is the eighth economy in the world if you were to compare it to nation states. So what happens here really matters. The world is watching, and you've got to keep moving forward. Um, we are on the cusp of a solar revolution. Um, my book is an attempt to document the early stages of that revolution, and I invite you to uh, follow my family's good example and take a look at the book. I, I call this picture Harnessing the Sun While Sitting in the Shade. So thank you very much, and I would welcome your questions. Or comments? Yes. Oh, sorry. I think, do you want them at the microphone? Yes. So if you could come up to the microphone. Is that all right? Hello? Okay. If you had to pick the, let's say that I gave you five years to maximize the percentage of electricity that can be done through solar in California, what would be the top two areas that you think are the simplest, easiest ways to amplify our usage of solar? You got five years to do it. What would you do? Um, I would certainly be focusing on household solar as one of those, just, not just because of the amount of solar energy that can be generated, but because I think it's very important that people feel that they are playing a role in moving us toward a post-fossil fuel future. Um, and um, I, I think utility-scale solar is still very, very important, and you do have a desert renewable energy conservation plan that is still, I think, in the final draft phases. But um, it's been a hotly debated plan, but there are lots and lots of opportunities for developing solar on a utility scale. One thing I should actually say about that that I, is very important, um, people think about the acreage that would be required for solar energy, and it would be a lot of acreage. Um, according to a study that was done in 2008, long ago in terms of what the efficiency of solar technology actually is today, estimated that we'd need about 13 million acres um, of land if we were to generate 100% of our electricity from the sun. Just by way of comparison, 88 million acres of American land is now planted in corn, and about 35% of that acreage is used to grow corn for ethanol, a highly questionable fuel in terms of the overall energy and environmental balance. So um, a fraction of what we are now using to, to grow ethanol, you could say, we could be using to generate all of our electricity from the sun. And I'm not suggesting that we generate 100% of our electricity from the sun. I'm simply saying that um, we have those resources, and we really need to think soberly about the different ways we use and abuse our our lands. So, next question. Uh, thank you very much. That was a very informative talk. Uh, my name is Jefferson Litton with the Community Environmental Council. First thing I wanted to say was here in Santa Barbara, we're pursuing community choice, much like we're in. Great. So, we're having a feasibility study coming uh, this spring. But my question is sort of with the advent of community choice programs and with utilities making it harder and harder to go solar with their new net metering policies, for example, what just happened in Nevada. 
Yes. What do you see developing as the utilities make the economic payoffs much harder of going solar and basically almost driving customers to disconnect from the grid? I think there is a raging debate about what is fair and what is fair to whom. Um, net metering has brought a wonderful um, opportunity to hundreds of thousands of households and businesses. Um, I don't pretend to predict exactly how that debate will come out, but um, something uh, probably short of the full retail value for the excess power generated is where some states at least will end up. Um, hopefully not so much short of it that it will drive people out of the industry. The price of solar is coming down, so that works in our favor. And it's not so much that the price of solar modules um, is now coming down. It's that the balance of system costs, all of the other costs, the labor costs, the mounting systems, and other related costs are coming down. And there is a lot of room there to economize. Um, Another very important factor that is encouraging is the extension of the federal investment tax credit, a 30% tax credit applicable to residential, commercial, and utility-scale solar. The fact that that was about to expire at the end of 2016 and was going to cause a major crisis in the industry and has now been extended through, I think, the end of 2021 is a huge gift and an opportunity for those of us who want to see renewable energy developed on a significant scale. So I think it's an unnerving time in terms of watching this debate play out, um, but I think that reasonable minds will hopefully prevail in coming up with fair solutions, and it is a legitimate set of questions to be asked in terms of how you balance what should be provided to solar versus non-solar electric customers. Um, one of your earlier slides, one of your earlier slides, you showed the, uh, the drop in price uh, for solar, I, th I, I think I'm just, I don't know if I remember correctly, but 14 cents per watt. How would that compare to uh, fossil fuels? And how would it compare to fossil fuels if you took into account the social cost of carbon? Right. Um, without taking the social cost of carbon into account, um, solar is now um, roughly, the life cycle cost of solar is between seven and nine cents per kilowatt hour. Gas generally comes in around six cents per kilowatt hour if you don't include carbon capture and sequestration. If you do, it's about twice that, so it cannot compete with solar if you integrate that. And that might be a, a fair surrogate for what the cost of carbon would be. Um, same thing for coal. Coal is in the six cent per kilowatt hour range if you don't include uh, managing carbon responsibly, but if you do, then carbon is up around 12, 13, 14 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, nuclear, it's hard to say because very few plants uh, are being, a couple plants are now being built, but essentially no plants have been built for the last couple of decades. But according to Lazard, the cost of new nuclear is in the range of 12, 13 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so solar is really, and wind, I should mention, ranges quite widely because obviously wind regimes profoundly affect the, the cost of, of wind, um, but we're seeing wind in the, we're seeing it as low as three cents per kilowatt hour, but it also can go up to five, seven, eight, nine cent per kilowatt hour, depending upon where. So solar and wind are really competitive technologies today. Um, the investment tax credit is a huge help, uh, but 
it's important to, I think, emphasize that we have been subsidizing fossil fuels and nuclear technology for decades and decades. So I don't think it's unreasonable to give a nascent technology a leg up and help them move forward and move toward full integration into our electric generating infrastructure. Any two more questions or how are we on time? Oh, we have time for a little more. If indeed the uh, costs are so comparable within one cent per kilowatt hour, why would anyone build a coal plant or a gas plant? Well, I think that points to <laughs> the, the transformative challenge that is facing the utility sector today because um, it's a lot simpler to build a coal-fired, not so much today, coal-fired power plant, but um, a fossil fuel-based power plant that you basically turn on, modulate according to demand, and don't worry very much about complexities of demand response and intermittency. With solar, as with wind, you have intermittent technology, so it takes a much more sophisticated grid operator, um, and it's a lot more complicated for utilities to manage the load and the variations in load. So I think that's, that's part of what is constraining solar today. We are seeing the development of storage technologies that will make it a lot easier to create a more even flow of power under a renewable energy regime. Um, and I'm not just talking about the storage wall that Elon Musk is talking about and, you know, a storage wall in every household, but that could be a good thing too. Um, that would allow us to be storing the electricity that we generate, not necessarily feeding it back into the grid, which in part answers the whole net metering dilemma, um, and using that power when we need to use it most in the peak periods, which tend to be evening hours when the sun isn't shining. Um, but uh, I think we're going to see utilities undergoing a profound challenge where they're going to have to move away from being purveyors of kilowatt hours to being comprehensive energy services providers, where they are dealing in the demand response market, where they're dealing in the storage market, and where they're dealing in the power generation market. And um, that's going to be a very rough and tumble transition. I don't know how many of you have heard of David Crane. A few of you. David Crane was the CEO until a few weeks ago of NRG Energy. Um, and I always like to quote him because he always said the most outrageous things, and I was in awe that he could get away with saying those things as the head of a major uh, power producer. Um, among other things, he called the utility industry a society, I think, of Neanderthals, which did not, I don't think, make his colleagues in the industry very happy. He was shown the door a couple of weeks ago because the renewable energy side of the NRG business wasn't doing so well, and I suspect that uh, various people on the NRG board were not thrilled with the way he was articulating the challenges facing us going forward, but his basic philosophy was we must move toward a distributed electric generating scenario, which is going to involve storage, it's going to involve conservation in a smart way, smart grid management, et cetera. And it was a message that I think was a little bit ahead of his time and, and enough ahead of its time that he lost his job. Another question. Oh, yes. Uh, I think you need to come to the mic.
My name is uh, John Perlin, and uh, the question I have is, rather than uh, oh, tax carbon, why not give people who use solar a carbon uh, a, a reward? Say that once more. Okay. Instead of having a, a negative yes. to utilities uh, producing carbon energy, why not have a positive, a premium for people producing uh, non-carbon? Okay. Well, I think that really is what the investment tax credit is all about on the federal level, and it's also what the um, net metering regimes that operate in so many states well, that's what is I'm about. Net metering is not being like a question in places. Why not say we give an incentive, forget the idea of net metering, but an incentive for being non-carbon? Um, well, um, it's certainly a possibility. I think any mention of the word tax is not going to go very far that's what I mean, in so Congress. So I think that, again, I view the investment tax credit for solar and the production tax credit for wind as good surrogates for a carbon tax, because I don't think politically we're going to see a carbon tax go forward. So um, as long as we can maintain those important incentives, I think we're probably doing about as much as we can do on the federal level, along with the president's uh, clean power plan to reduce carbon emissions from our uh, fossil fuel power plants. Thank you. Two more questions, I think, and then we'll wrap. I think one of the hurdles that we face in transitioning to a 21st century uh, power paradigm is breaking through state domination of the management of our grid. Right now, basically, state public utility commissions determine where and how transmission lines are built. And so that makes it very hard, for example, to bring wind out of Wyoming to California which makes a lot of sense from a resource utilization perspective, because as you say, the winds tend to blow stronger at night, which is exactly when the sun is not shining. Um, if we were to create a robust regional grid that broke through some of those state barriers, we would be in a much healthier situation in terms of being able to integrate uh, renewable resources into our, our mix. And I think Wyoming wind is a great example because Wyoming's a small state. It has a surplus, huge surplus of wind, huge surplus of natural gas as well. So they've got all of the in-state generation that they need, and they're looking for markets in California to sell their wind power too. So I think that's important. I think it's also really important to recognize that um, there are different strengths to each technology depending upon the regions. Um, Iowa today gets close to 30% of its power from wind, which is absolutely fantastic. If you look at the wind belt uh, that appears on the National Renewable Energy Laboratory's maps, you see a swath of wonderfully rich winds extending from the Dakotas on down through Texas, and we're seeing wind develop on a formidable scale in those areas. Texas, for example, ERCOT, the Texas uh, grid operator, um, gets about... 10% of its power right now from, from wind, which is stupendous in a state that is the largest 
power consumer in the country. It's not the biggest state in terms of population, but it's the largest power consumer in the country. So it's kind of a mix and match. I think we're used to the comfort of uh, monolithic paradigms. So, you know, it's the coal era or it's the oil era or it's the nuclear era. And I think the renewable energy era has to be a much more diverse um, exploitation of multiple resources. I think there was one more question. Um, thank you. Um, I had a question, maybe related, but then again, somewhat different, because you, oh, you were pushing very much here, sun and solar, and I'm from Germany, and I think we are up uh, a couple on these numbers, so we have our experiences. Yes. And I think in your cost estimate, you are missing a point that is, uh, if I have this renewable energies, I have to put in what is, what is the price of reliable electricity, because that's what we are after. At least we don't yes. like blackouts so much. Yes. And so, so I think in, uh, a, in a lot of the numbers you are quoting, you, you need to put in the reliable hours, and, uh, and you need to add, as you added to fossil, the CCS cost, you would need for renewables probably right. add the storage cost or so forth. Right. So maybe you can give an estimate on this, and then I think you partly answered the second question I had, that is, what's your, you said it's not 100% solar, yeah. what's, what's then yeah. your future yeah. vision, yeah. so what's the next book, basically, yeah? <laughs> Um, first, uh, I just want to credit Germany with leading the world in solar implementations. Germany, I think, now has close to 40 gigawatts of installed solar capacity, which is about twice what we have here in America. And what's remarkable about that isn't just that it's a smaller country, it's that it is a country with a lot less solar exposure. The typical German city gets about 1,500 hours of sunlight per year, if you contrast that again to my hometown, Boston, which gets over 2,000 hours of sunlight per year. Yes, this is a good example of probably your typical day in Germany. But um, Germany's done a remarkable job in, in moving solar power and wind power forward. Um, the prices I did quote you um, were prices that reflect the current market value for those technologies. And they're from Lazard, which is looking not just at those technologies in isolation, but what those technologies are valued at in the marketplace. So um, I think those are fair numbers in that regard. That doesn't mean that if we were, let's say, a 50% solar society, we would not be paying a lot more to integrate an amount of storage that could create the kind of grid stability that we would need with that higher percentage of solar. Um, one study that I think is indicative of where we could get to with renewable energy, solar and wind, um, was done by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Um, it estimated that we could be getting half of our total power needs from the wind and the sun using technologies that are currently available by 2050. So to me, that's kind of the least we could do. I think we could do a lot more than that, but I think that that is a very conservative estimate of what we could achieve in the relatively near future. I think we could be an 80% wind and solar economy um, by the latter part of the century if we really set our minds and policies to work at achieving that goal. So thank you very much for coming. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.